0: At around 10 p.m. on July 20th, 1969, eight-year-old Peter Diamandis positioned himself in front of a large television set in the wood-paneled basement of his family's home in Mount Vernon, New York. His mom, dad, younger sister, and grandparents were seated nearby. Peter, in pajamas and cape, aimed his mom's Super 8 camera at the screen, panned the room, paused on his white German shepherd, Prince, and returned to the television. On the carpet next to Peter were his note cards and newspaper clippings organized by NASA mission, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, and by rockets, Redstone, Atlas, Titan, and Saturn. The third grader, unable to sit still under normal circumstances, His mother called him ataktos, Greek for unruly. Fidgeted, bounced, and rocked in place. This was the moment Peter had dreamed about. A moment that promised to be better than all the electronics he could buy at Radio Shack. Cooler than every Estes rocket ever made. More exciting even than the M-80s lit on his birthday, sending his mom and friends diving for cover. The Sears-Silvertone TV was tuned to CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite, the seasoned newsman who was at Cape Kennedy, Florida. Peter, with the camera on, read the words, Man on the Moon, the Epic Journey of Apollo 11. He listened to a clip from a speech given by President Kennedy in May 1961. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal the on-screen countdown began for Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong and Edwin Buzz Aldrin to park their lunar lander on the surface of the moon. A quest for the ages, a Cold War imperative, and a high-stakes contest between nations that had begun when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite, on October 4, 1957. Now. Almost twelve years later, America was trying to make history of its own. Astronaut Michael Collins, piloting Apollo 11's command module Columbia, had already separated from the lander and was alone in lunar orbit, waiting for his fellow astronauts to walk on the moon. If all went according to plan, Collins, Aldrin, and Armstrong would reunite in orbit in less than a day. About 17,000 engineers, mechanics, and managers were at the Florida Space Center for the launch. In all, an estimated 400,000 people had worked on some part of the Apollo program, from the women in Dover, Delaware, who did the sewing and gluing of the life-protecting rubberized fabric of the spacesuits, to the engineers at NASA, Northrop, and North American Aviation who worked for years on the clustering three-shoot parachute system for Columbia. The cost of the program was put at more than $25 billion. Peter daydreamed constantly about exploring the glittering and dark expanse in his own spaceship, like the Robinson family in the television series Lost in Space, with the precocious nine-year-old son Will Robinson and the humanized and weaponized robot. But on this night, the TV screen had his undivided attention. Cronkite, in his deep voice and languid manner, said, Ten minutes to the touchdown. Oh, boy. Ten minutes to landing on the moon. The program flashed between streamed images of the moon and simulations of the landing done by CBS with NASA's help. The signal from the lunar camera had to be transmitted a quarter of a million miles to the Parks Radio Astronomy Observatory west of Sydney, Australia, and then across the Pacific Ocean by satellite to the control center in Houston. From there, the images would go to television networks and finally to television sets in the United States and abroad.